What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Rob Davis, journalist and author on how the gambling industry in Britain has not only hooked its players, but also has a firm grip on the wider economy too. Jackpot is the new book from investigative reporter for The Guardian, Rob Davis. It tells the story of how Britain became one of the largest gambling markets in the world. Rob's book describes how factors such as the mainstreaming of gambling advertising in the early 2000s has combined with high-tech micro-targeting of online gamblers in order to create a multi-billion pound industry that often preys on some of society's most vulnerable. Our host today is Joey Durso, investigations writer at The Athletic UK. Joey and Rob discussed the book and took questions from an online audience recently. Here's Joey with more. I mean, the sort of big theme of your book, which, as I understand it, is is the internet, which changed everything. And 20 years ago or 25 years ago, you know, what, what was gambling in this country? Who betted? What what was it like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know how old you are, Joey, but I can remember back uh, that far, more I or less. I was 30 yesterday. Oh, well, okay. Well, maybe you can't quite remember. But back then, obviously, you had the high street bookmakers, as you do now. And really, the the main other option was on-course betting at uh, at the racing, at the horses. You had telephone betting, which had been sort of pioneered towards the end of the 90s as uh, some of the firms went went offshore to places like Gibraltar and Malta. And you did have a tiny bit of internet betting, but it, you know it, it wasn't a mainstream activity by any means and certainly not the activity that we see now, which is pretty widespread, certainly among young men, certainly among football fans. I wouldn't say it was exactly a niche activity, but it wasn't something that you saw in more or less all parts of society in the way that uh, I believe you do now. So when did this first start to change? When and how did the internet first start to change gambling? I think there are two or three things that all happen at once, more or less, within the space of two or three years that are crucial. The first is the legislation. Tony Blair's government lays down the Gambling Act of 2005. It comes into force in 2007. Now, something happens in between those two dates, which is that the iPhone is invented in 2006. And that's when things really start to take off. Of course, before that, you could bet on a desktop computer, you could bet on a laptop. But once people had smartphones in their pockets, um, as you know, that took off fairly quickly. Essentially, everybody had access to gambling 24-7. And there's something else that's going on at the same time as that, uh, which is the massive increase in the number of football games that are being broadcast on live television. So all of these things are happening at once. And it's kind of, uh, I mean, you could argue a toxic 
combination of events that means that suddenly gambling moves very much into the mainstream in a way that I would argue that it, it wasn't before, particularly when it comes to football, which is you know the national game, the most popular sport in the UK and beyond. And, you know, I'm sure you would agree that lots of people enjoy gambling and it's perfectly harmless and a bit of fun and whatever. But for some people, it is ruined lives. And your book contains lots of, you know, pretty harrowing stories about suicides and, and the sort of real sharp end of... So why is the damage that gambling can do in the worst cases, which are, of course, a minority and whatever else, but, but, but you know, what, how much harm can it do? And maybe could you tell us, could you tell us about one of the stories in the book, maybe? Is there, an, is there one person who bravely spoke to you that, that sticks in your mind? Oh, I mean, there are so many and so many from my reporting over the years as well, stories that haven't necessarily made it into the book. But I mean, there are so many different aspects that you're talking about here. You're talking about financial hardship, for instance. And there was one person I spoke to who had been a very successful businessman until there was a, a, a tragic accident during what should have been a routine operation. And he became very severely disabled. And he had a compensation check from the NHS. And he used to go down to a number of bookmakers in his area. They knew that he was gambling with a finite resource and that he couldn't work and that if he lost this money, he, he wouldn't have any more. And they essentially helped him to place bets that were far beyond his means. And he, he got through most of that money. And talking to him, I mean, he's tried to take his own life. And one of the only reasons he, he, he hasn't is that he's physically incapable of doing so, such uh, you know, such as the depth of... The, the the disability. So, you know, a story like that is certainly tragic. I spoke to somebody else who was using a redundancy payout to fund their gambling and was being treated like a VIP. I've spoken, obviously, to parents who've, who've lost children uh, to suicide. And I think as a, as a parent myself, that's about the worst thing I can imagine happening to anyone. So at the sharp end of gambling, you know, these are the kind of stories we're talking about. We're talking about financial ruin, family breakdown, crime, job losses, and suicide in the most extreme examples. Uh, you briefly touched on there, which is something that I really didn't know about before I read this book, the, the, the VIPs, which is a bit of a funny word for it. Can you tell us a bit more about VIPs and who they are? And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the easiest way to describe it is that there's this idea of a VIP, which is a high roller, right? And And, and when I first heard of it, I was thinking you know, a scene in a James Bond film where he sort of rocks up to the Baccarat table and is maybe exchanging witticisms with uh, a femme fatale or the, the casino owner. But in the world of online gambling, a VIP is essentially someone who can be relied upon to lose and to lose big. And if you are that person, what the gambling company wants is not only to keep you gambling, but primarily to keep you gambling with them and not take your business elsewhere. And so it's in their interests to give you things. And that can include free bets, which are you know not free necessarily, but that's the way they're described. Bonuses, cash back if, if you lose on certain bets. You might even have money put in your betting account to encourage you to go and place a bet if you haven't done so in a while. And then you know it, it can range from that to all, all sorts of lavish hospitality. Days at the races. I spoke to a guy who was flown from Dubai to London to see the North London Derby. He was flown to see a Floyd Mayweather uh, boxing match. In that, if, you, if you're in the box at whatever, the Emirates Stadium or whatever, is there someone next to you sort of saying, oh, you know, you're going to put a grand on or something? Is that how it works or is it a bit more subtle than that? I, I don't think it's more subtle than that. No, it's probably less subtle than that, if anything. I mean, you, you, you might have a VIP manager who's somebody who's assigned to essentially keep you 
playing with the company. And they'll be there doing the kind of, you know, the banter and the, you know, chatting about the game you're watching, perhaps. But it's all designed so that the next conversation you have is, you know, we've, we've put a couple of hundred quid in your account, mate, have a, have a few bets. And they know they can do that because in the long run, they're going to win far, far more back from you than, than they're going to spend on, on buttering you up. And, you know, it's extraordinary the extent to which VIP schemes had become widespread until about sort of two or three years ago. I mean, I did a Freedom of Information request to the Gambling Commission back in 2019, I think it was, based on a tip-off I'd had from 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 someone about a report they had on on how reliant companies were on the VIP schemes. And some of the statistics were incredible. I mean, there were companies out there where... Two percent of their customers were VIPs, but they were making 80 percent of their revenue from them. So it, you know, it just goes to show how important some of these schemes were, and how disproportionately some companies were relying on people who could be relied upon to lose. And there's there's a phrase that's uh, used in the gambling industry, which is uh, pretty distasteful, I guess, which is "mug punters." You know, and that's punters, gamblers who can be you can predict are going to gamble more than they can afford, and they're going to lose. And really, a VIP and a mug punter to my mind, unless you're talking about maybe a footballer who can afford to lose huge sums of money. But a mug punter and a VIP are more or less the same thing, in my view. I mean, the, the, the free bet thing fascinates me because, I mean, you know, I'm probably not the typical gambling customer, but I do occasionally, you know, put like five quid on a football match I'm watching on TV or something. And I very regularly will just sort of, if I open an app, will see that I've been offered a free bet. And for me, it's great because I genuinely make more money than I've lost on these things. And I've looked at that on the, cause I, you know, and I've never had any danger that I'll be you know, putting in money I don't have or I barely ever bet more than a fiver. But the amount of free bets that I got was presumably trying to reduce me to get more into it. And I, I'm just not interested enough to. So I'm basically winning. But th- that's the goal, right? Yeah. I mean, and the worst thing about that is if you're somebody who's trying to stop and you're getting these emails, notifications, text messages, whatever it might be, just enticing you with these free offers. I mean, I've spoken to so many people who had gone three, four, five months without a bet. And then all of a sudden they say, well, you know, that that offer is is too good to turn down, isn't it? And I've got a good feeling about this horse or, or, or this football match or, or whatever it might be. And, you know, it's not like the kind of blunderbuss of TV advertising where you send out adverts and you kind of hope that people are paying attention or they haven't gone out of the room to make a cup of tea during half time or whatever it is. You know, this is a company talking directly to you. And now, you know, we're all used to that in lots of walks of life now. I mean, I get so many promotional emails in my inbox, but most of the promotional emails I get are not for potentially addictive products. And, you know, I'm sometimes, you know, I sometimes get a bit of stick, a bit of flack from people in the gambling industry for saying, you know, why why don't you talk about alcohol uh, like this? And, you know, obviously the dangers of alcohol are well documented and there are there are tragic horror stories of, of alcohol addiction, and which is actually more widespread in the UK than gambling addiction by some distance. But the difference is that that is pretty well understood. The alcohol industry has, by and large, got a fairly good handle on how it should behave. And until relatively recently, the gambling industry simply has not. You know, so you're not, your pub landlord is not going to phone you up and say, I've got three free gin and tonics for you if you come down the dog and duck. But the gambling industry has been getting away with that kind of thing for years. And like you say, you know, for the majority of people, it's a harmless activity, it's a bit of fun. And I think it's really important that people like me admit that because, you know, I'm not a campaigner, I'm a journalist, but there is a sort of at the margins of the industry. And, and we're talking about quite a lot of people affected here, by the way. 
you know, there is there has been this awful behavior and there are these people who are very badly harmed by it. Our estimates of that in terms of how many people are, are gambling addicts are not very good. But we know that we're talking about hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people, particularly when you factor in, you know, the husbands, wives, children, employers, you know, all the other people who are affected by the harm that a gambling addict suffers. You know, the best estimate is that six other people are affected for every person who has a gambling addiction. You know, and pretty soon those numbers stack up. You're starting to talk about people in your life, people you know. And I think that's something that has remained hidden for a long time. And it's it's only now that we're really starting to acknowledge it. You talk a bit about footballs. I, I report on football. I know that you're a big Tottenham fan. Um, how, how linked to these? How linked to these two things? You know, the development of gambling in the last twenty years and football. You know, it's impossible to watch a football match on TV or go to a match without being bombarded by by adverts. Yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely symbiotic relationship. You know, I talked earlier about that confluence of events where you have the invention of of the iPhone, the smartphone, and you have the the Tony Blair's gambling act. And you also have the increase in the number of games that are broadcast. Well, on any given Saturday or Sunday, you could potentially watch four or five games now. And until recently, gambling adverts were being shown those broadcasts. A couple of years ago, the gambling industry came forward with a voluntary whistle-to-whistle ban that, mean, that means you shouldn't see gambling adverts during well, five minutes either side of the game before 9pm. I mean, there are flaws with that that we could talk about, but until quite recently gambling adverts were simply plastered across those broadcasts to a captive audience. Now, even since the whistle-to-whistle ban, if you're watching a game, you could have one team that's got a gambling sponsor on their shirt, the other one's got a gambling sponsor on their shirt too. You've got advertising hoardings around the side of the pitch. And there's some research that says that gambling logos can feature 700 times during a 90-minute match. And that's without the adverts. So, you know, the, the game has become completely saturated by gambling imagery in a way that it just simply wasn't 15, 20 years ago. I and mean, I think it was in, in 2008, if I recall correctly, Middlesbrough were the only team with a gambling sponsor on their shirt. And now it's half the teams in the Premier League. And of course, there's a, an element of dependence going the other way, right? These, these are teams that are relying very heavily on the gambling sponsorship money that's coming in. And in the book, I documented a, a court case that I came across a couple of years ago and it involved a guy who sort of brokered deals between football clubs and potential sponsors. He was a sort of middleman. He would connect them up and take a cut. And he was suing Liverpool because he said that he had brokered their relationship with BetVictor, an online betting company. He lost that case in the end. But what it what what was revealed in the evidence was quite how reliant both industries have become on one another. And you had the gambling industry saying, you know, we really want to get into Liverpool and we're prepared to spend, I think it was three or four million quid on sponsoring the training kit. And then you had Liverpool in the other direction saying, you know, we need we need this money coming in because, you know, as, as we all know, fans want their clubs to spend as much as they possibly can on players. And we're all familiar with that. So they've become so intrinsically linked now that it it, it seems almost impossible to unpick the two from one another now. I mean, we may get to a point where that happens via legislation and that's something we can potentially come on to, but it didn't used to be that way. I think, yeah. And, and I think one thing which your, your book sort of discusses as well is that a lot of people would think, and when I think about myself occasionally putting five quid in a football match, it will be like, oh, what will the score be in this huge match that everyone's watching or something very tangible like that, or like, you know, the Grand National. Whereas there are people who... who who, who bet on football, who, you know, they're betting on yellow cards, they're betting on who's going to get in the next corner and 
can almost not enjoy football without constantly betting on it. Absolutely. And that's one thing I didn't mention earlier, actually. So thank you for picking me up on it. When we talk about the uh, combination of the smartphone and football betting, what that allowed was the big innovation came from Bet365, really, which was in-play betting. So you're no longer betting on the score or the first goal scorer or maybe having a bet at half time on the end result. As you say, you're betting on next yellow card, the number of corners, the number of throw-ins, and you can do it at any time of the match. And suddenly, betting on sport becomes kind of akin to playing a slot machine or playing roulette because you can keep feeding your stakes in. You can keep having another spin. If that one doesn't work out, you can do another one. It's sort of rapid-fire high octane and so that's something that that came about and as you say the, the end result of that is that people are concentrating almost as much on on the betting as they are on the football they can't watch the game without betting there was a i think it was a, a i'm not going to say the company there was a gambling operator that had an advert and just in case i get the company wrong where it, it sort of said oh i'm a nodder i look up at the game down on my phone up at the game down at my phone and i just thought i can't believe that's an advert it feels really tragic to me as a kind of, I guess you could say a football purist. And, you know, it, it reminded me of, uh, there was a there was a, there was was a time when I was at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I call it White Hart Lane, although that's not his name anymore, technically. Uh, and there was a guy in front of me and it was a, it was a tense game. I can't remember what it was, but I think, you know, the scores were, were even with not, not that long left. And there was a guy sitting in front of me. And, you know, this is a symptom of modern football to an extent. There's a lot of tourists in the ground. And, and he's looking at his phone, deciding whether to cash out. And I just couldn't really believe it. I thought there are people who would, who would love to have that seat. You know, I've got young relatives who've asked me to get them tickets for Tottenham games. And I you know, haven't been able to get them at times. And this guy's sitting there looking at his phone. And I think even if you sort of put aside the potential harms of gambling, which you can't do, but even if you do that, I guess there's a, a sense to which the sport is being slightly cheapened by stuff like this, or at least I feel it is. And maybe that's sanctimonious and maybe it's overly purist, but it, but it is how I feel. Because, you know, the idea that, you know, it matters more when there's money on it is the Sky slogan. And, and you know, at the beginning of the football chapter, I compare that slogan with uh, a quote by the great Danny Blanchflower, former Tottenham player, where he says the, um, the game is about glory. Uh, you know, the fallacy is that it's about winning, but the game is about glory about going out there and playing with style and, and flourish, about beating the opposition, you know, not waiting for them to die of boredom. And you stack that up against that it matters more when there's money on it. And I, I don't know, it's a, it's a little sickening to me, to me anyway. We're talking about football betting, which I guess, you know, it's probably at least tangible to most people, but the sort of online slots, online casinos, and you see these advertisers, I think particularly on kind of, you know, w- women face TV or TV that lots of women watch, you see this sort of, stuff advertised more, the sort of virtual casinos, virtual, what's, what's, what's that world like? Well, I mean, the industry's been very smart with that, right? There's a sort of a, a pool of people who are likely to be interested in gambling. And historically, that's been absolutely male-dominated. And football's been a big growth area. The, you know, uh, revenues from football betting have pretty much doubled in the last five years, I think I'm right in saying. But Typically, women haven't been as interested in sports betting. So the industry, what the industry's done is it's taken things like slots, bingo, online casino games, and sort of packaged them up in what they think are sort of women-friendly imagery. You know, they've made them 
pink or whatever. That's not me saying that women like pink things, but this is what the industry is is, is trying to do, right? And then advertising during Loose Women, for instance, and trying to hit that audience because that's the only way that you can increase the pool of people that you're you're trying to speak to. And that's, I think, you know, Barbara Windsor, rest in peace, was... Uh, was the, the 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 face of I think jackpot joy it was for a long time, so yeah the industry's become quite smart at, at working out where it can kind of fill in the gaps of participation in recent years and and what we've seen according to a number of recent studies is increased rates of problem gambling among women and what's quite interesting among women is that they they don't seem to be able to talk about it as much. They don't seem to seek help as much as men. There seems to be a greater stigma, a greater shame around it, perhaps because historically it has been more unusual for women to be gambling addicts. So, you know, you you risk people slipping through the cracks there. And one of the things I would have liked to have done in the book if I had any regrets is, is to have more female voices, but perhaps because of that stigma, perhaps because of that shame, it was it was quite difficult to get more women to come forward and, and speak to me about it. It'd be great to talk about, you know, what's being done about this regulation, politics, and maybe a good way into that is talking about FOBTs, which I know you did loads of reporting on. So for the un- uninitiated, what are what are FOBTs? What, what is that story which you did so much work on? So fixed odds betting terminals is essentially digital roulette. There are other things you could do on the machines, but that was by far the most popular. And if you went into a bookmaker, well, even if you go into bookmakers now, to be honest, but if you went in four or five years ago, you'd see four of these machines in every shop because bookmakers were only allowed four per shop. So they would have four in each one. And then once they had uh, the regulation four, usually they would open a shop three or four meters down the road, three or four shops down the road so that they could fit in another four there. And you could bet £100 every 20 seconds on these things. And people were entranced by them. And I, I, I've heard gamblers tell me that, but I've seen it in person. I mean, when I, during my reporting, I would go up and down Newham, Newham High Street, for instance, or around Birmingham, watching people play the machines. And they just seemed to have a particular effect on people because they were so rapid fire and because you could you could bet quite high stakes on them, people would stand in front of the machines just doing spin after spin after spin. And in theory, the losses aren't necessarily that great because the return to player is about, I think it was about 97% on a FOBT, which is essentially if I put in £100 over time, I'm likely to get £97 back. Uh, it's a guaranteed win for the bookmaker and it shouldn't be too great a loss for me. You had a good line in that about about money laundering. Yeah, I mean they were they were used for money laundering, right? If you've, you know, got 200 quid in your pocket from selling drugs on the street, I mean, you know, you're going to put it into a FOBT and you're going to get back clean money and and you've probably washed your cash uh, more cheaply than than you could do in lots of other ways. But they also had the potential for people to rack up unbelievable losses in a short space of time if they were unlucky. You know, there was a report that came out, uh, I think it was from the Gambling Commission, People had lost £10,000 in a single session more than 13 times one year. Uh, and the number of times that people lost more than £1,000 in a year was astronomical. It was tens of thousands of times that this had happened. And so, the, I, you know, I don't know if people will remember this, but they became a political hot-button uh, issue. Uh, and there was a campaign to reduce the stakes on fixed-odds betting terminals from £100 uh, to £2. The campaign was eventually successful. 
And at the beginning of this podcast, you said that my reporting on that had led to the resignation of Tracy Crouch. I want to slightly disavow uh, that it, Tracy Crouch's resignation was not due to anything that I did. Tracy Crouch's resignation was on a point of principle. She was the the, the minister in charge of that review, of, uh, and she'd been promised that the stakes on fob, fob teas were going to be cut to £2 and that it was going to be done quickly. And there's a bit in the book where it discusses how this happened, but there was a bit of chicanery between various ministers and the Treasury, and essentially the Treasury delayed it for, for six months. And you'll hear different differences of opinion on whether there was a delay or you know when the date was originally meant to be and all of this. But the upshot was that that Tracy Crouch wouldn't go along with that and she resigned and it and it led to a kind of a cross-party movement, a kind of rebellion, and eventually the government was forced to to back down. And, uh, you know, that was quite an extraordinary moment in the history of gambling regulation because it kind of really brought it to the forefront of people's minds. You were seeing it talked about on TV shows. You were seeing soap storylines um, about gambling addiction all of a sudden. And I think that has kind of led us to where we are now, which is with the rest of the industry being looked at and a government review that, that is underway at the moment with a white paper expected within the next few months. And um, yeah, what, what can we expect from that white paper? What might change? I mean, that's a big question, right? I mean, I think this government actually does have quite an appetite for regulatory reform when it comes to gambling. It's been quite a strange one. Labour's been very quiet on it, whereas there are people at the top of the Tory party who who, who are um, pretty keen on reform. There's all kinds of things, you know, outcomes that you might see. I was just say, there's another interesting thing we could touch on briefly is, is Labour and various politicians and, and the gambling industry. I found that fascinating, some of those links. And as you said, it doesn't necessarily doesn't fit at all neatly down left-right divides at all. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I think the thing that I would say is probably the most vocal and effective campaigner on gambling issues in Parliament is a Labour MP, Carolyn Harris, the MP for Swansea East. But first of all, it was it was Labour that introduced the regulatory landscape that we have today. And that was sort of part of the kind of Blairite ethos that I think it was Mandelson, Peter Mandelson who said, I'm intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes. You know, I, there's some logic to that. But the idea was we, we can create this kind of money-spinning, world-leading gambling industry. And because, you know, capitalism always sorts things out in the end, the industry will self-regulate because it, you know, it, it, it won't want to go over the line and be punished for it. But actually, for lots and lots of different reasons, things didn't work out like that. And now we're looking at, you know, a party that people think of as being the bastion of free market capitalism. I, I'm not sure it is now, but that's a separate discussion, being the one that's actually looking at reigning in this industry. So we sort of, it, yeah, it doesn't break along the lines that, that people necessarily expect it to do. To. And actually, Labour's been very quiet on that. And, and if anything, a lot of Labour politicians are, are quite in bed with the gambling industry. There's been a bit of a revolving door between Labour and the gambling industry, which I think is what you're getting at. I mean, Tom Watson, the former deputy leader of the of the Labour Party, when he was in that position, he was very, very vocal on gambling issues, very cr- critical of the gambling industry. Well, he left politics and he's now an advisor to Paddy Power on safer gambling. What Tom Watson can tell Paddy Power about safer gambling, I, I don't know personally. But I mean, that's that's not where it ends. I mean, Michael Duggar, who's a very close personal friend of Tom Watson, former Labour MP, former spokesman for, for Gordon Brown, He's now the chief executive of the Betting and Gaming Council, which is the lobby group 
or they call it a standards body, but the, the, the lobby group for the gambling industry. You know, the industry spends very heavily on hospitality. There's a lot of Labour and Conservative MPs who enjoyed the largesse of the gambling industry during the summer of sport. They were going to Euro 2020, they were going to Ascot, they were going to Lords. And then quite often you would see these same MPs in Parliament days later talking about we have to be careful about not regulating the gambling industry too too hard. I mean... I mad. I mean, some of the stories that you've done about MPs literally getting paid like a, like a top-up salary by... Right, absolutely. I mean, and MPs' second jobs has become a huge issue over the past six months. But, you know, this goes back a long way. You've got MPs like Philip Davis, who's who earned £55,000 in a year. Well, in less than a year, actually, because it was for a few months' work. We're talking about 400... I think it was £200 an hour he was earning for them. One of the, There was Lawrence Robertson as well, who was earning... One of them was earning £200 an hour, one of them was earning £400 an hour. You know, 55 grand in under a year for having a second job, again, advising on safer gambling and customer service to Entain, which is the owner of Ladbrokes. Now, I, I personally find it very difficult to believe that Philip Davis MP has anything to tell Entain about customer service or about safer gambling. So you ask yourself at that point, why are they paying him £55,000? Now, I'm not saying he can influence government policy. In fact, one former minister who was involved in, in government policy said to me, look, when Philip, Philip Davis comes towards you in the lobby, you already know what he's going to say about gambling and you can kind of safely ignore it. The question for me is more, what's going on in the other direction? What do, what do MPs who are in the employ of the gambling industry, what are they hearing about you know, the winds of change in, in, in the making of policy? And what are they feeding back to those companies? Now, I've got no evidence that, that they're doing that, but I, it, it just strikes me as a threat to democracy, you know, those kinds of cosy relationships. And it's, it's all happening in plain sight. It's all declared. But that's, I mean, that's almost one of the most concerning things about it. I suppose it's better than it happening without our knowing. But, it, but it's interesting that we have this democracy in which that's completely tolerated. You do this in your book. You sort of play devil's advocate towards the end, and you know, take on board and and you know accept some and not accept others of some of the sort of rebuttals from from the gambling industry or you know people you know people say for example um, that they pay huge amounts of tax every year. You know, do you, do you want to maybe talk through some of those those sorts of arguments? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's really important to be even-handed. I, I, I'd say I've probably more even-handed in the in the book than I have been in my reporting, just partly because of the nature of news journalism, right? Which is you don't write a story when everything's going well. You write a story when something yeah. un, you know goes wrong. Sure, the industry pays tax; it employs people. I don't think those are get-out clauses for bad behaviour. Otherwise, you could argue that about you know drug dealing, prostitution, anything else. You could say, you know, that well maybe employment, perhaps not taxes. Yeah, look, I, I think it's important not to to demonise an entire an entire industry. There are so many people I've spoken to in the industry who are really decent, moral people who feel that parts of their sector have taken it too far, and I think that's that's pretty well recognised. And in fact, many of the people who are at the top of the at the top of gambling companies are not really gambling people. They're CEOs. They're boardroom. Right people. And what they're interested in is, is maximising revenue, and they don't necessarily think too hard about how that happens. Isn't that the, isn't that the Donald Trump quote about... Yeah, he says, what is it? I prefer to own slot machines than, than play them or, or something. Is yeah. that the one you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's, you know, there's a bit of that. Uh, but, and also the other thing is that, you, you know, if I, I'm not a campaigner, 
but what the industry would tell you, or what some people, sorry, what the lobby groups for the industry would tell you, people like Michael Duggar at the Betting and Gaming Council and people like Tom Watson, they use this, this term prohibitionists to talk about campaigners, to talk about people like me as well. Now, I have run across pretty much every extreme of attitudes towards the gambling industry, and I can't think of a single person I've met who wants it, who wants all gambling banned. Maybe the odd comment on Twitter that I've seen somewhere. But there are no prohibitionists. No one wants prohibition. What they want is a regulation that is that is fit for purpose, a regulator that will do its job. What they want is for, you know, multi-billion pound companies not to exploit the vulnerable and the poor, not to take every last penny from them and get away with it scot-free. You know, I think it's important to say the industry has improved a little bit over the past two, three years. But I think the counterpoint to that, the analogy I always use is if my cat gets up on the kitchen counter, I can be sitting in my chair going, get down, get down, and it, it won't move. It's only when it sees me coming towards it with menace in my eyes that the cat will jump down just as I'm about to shove it off the table. And that's the way the gambling industry has behaved in the last couple of years, to my mind. They've seen the writing on the wall and they've gone, oh, look, don't worry, we'll regulate ourselves. Here's the whistle-to-whistle ban. Here's a new initiative we're doing on, on game design or whatever it might be. Because they'd much rather be in control of regulatory reform than have it imposed upon them. And I think... Any industry that, that doesn't act on those things until it's absolutely has no other choice cannot be trusted to mark its own homework. And it cannot be trusted not to backslide, you know, if, if they're allowed to get away with, you know, only the measures that they themselves come up with. And that's why I think regulation is so important. We're at now at a, at a point where, you know, this is really important now. We've got to get this right now because we didn't get it right in 2005, partly due to bad luck with the timing of, as I mentioned, smartphones and so on, but partly because it, it, it was just done badly and it was done you know, with the wrong incentives in mind and without in putting in place the kind of safety net to pick up people who fell between the cracks and to make sure that we were actually documenting and, and quantifying how badly people were being hurt. Okay, great. And... Now's a good time to move on to questions. And actually, just touching on something you were just talking about, question number one is from Ben in Hammersmith. Hi, Ben. Um, it says, Rob, I'm curious about gambling lobbying in Britain. How powerful is the lobby? We've already spoken about that. We haven't so much spoken about how are they impacting, how are they impacting policy? How exactly does this lobbying change stuff? Well, you've got to be a bit careful here, right? Because there isn't gambling policy being made all the time. So you don't have this obvious chain of, of cause and effect. What you have is... Uh, sort of years and years of this kind of drip, drip, drip uh, lobbying effort by the industry in the hope that further down the line uh, it will stand them in good stead. You know, they're trying to get MPs on side for the point at which there's a vote, which is a point which we're coming to, right? I mean, I, I sort of, I didn't end up writing a story about this because there was too much else going on, but somebody very helpfully, helpfully provided me with a sheet of paper that showed parliamentary interventions by a number of MPs who'd accepted either hospitality or second jobs from the gambling industry and quotes by the Betting and Gaming Council or people who work for them. And there are sections of text that are more or less word for word. So what you're getting is the gambling industry writing, essentially writing MPs questions for them. You know, it's very hard to prove this stuff, of course. But what you can show is, I mean, there's one example. I, I did this in a story for The Guardian recently. It's not in the book. There's an MP called Scott Benton, who's, um, I think it's Blackpool South, is this constituency. 
you know, he stood up in Parliament and said that the Gambling Commission had been going way too far and it was, um, you know, too strict on the industry, which more or less nobody thinks, right? The National Audit Office, Public Accounts Committee have done reports saying the complete opposite, very robust reports. So he stood up and said all that stuff. And then three hours later, he's putting on his coat and going out to Wembley with, with, uh, with the gambling industry. I forget which operator it was now. So, you know... I, is this kind of lobbying having having an effect? Yeah, it's having an effect. You can you can see it. You can see these interventions in Parliament. You, you know, you can count it for yourself. The, the question is, what's going on behind the scenes? So that's the part we don't know. That's the part that worries me even more. I've got a question here from Sarah who says, one thing I notice is betting companies pretending to be your mate on social media and posting memes that appear to be targeting young men and boys. Why is there no regulation of gambling companies' access to teenagers? I mean, I suppose there is some regulation in that you have to be 18 to, to bet, right? But children are seeing, you know, it's impossible to watch a football match on TV without being bombarded with with gambling adverts, no matter how old you are. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, the question is, you may, the gambling industry is pretty good at, at stopping under 18s from betting, right? So, you know, I, I suppose damning with faint praise, I guess. But that doesn't mean that that kind of advertising isn't having an effect on young minds. When you're seeing that on Twitter, it's normalising it, right? And... One of the points that I make in the book, I'll probably make it too many times, but I just think it's really important, is that, you know, we talk about the effect that the saturation of sport with gambling has on people. And it doesn't have that much of an effect on my generation, I don't think, because we remember a time before that. And, you know, your attitude to to life and the way you receive these messages are perhaps slightly more fixed by the time you hit 21, 25, whatever it might be. But somebody turning 18 this year is really part of the first generation that has never known anything different other than gambling imagery being all around them, particularly in football. So we don't actually know what kind of problems we might have stored up for the future with that generation. That's one of the reasons why I think it's good to err on the side of caution when it comes to this, because, you know, it's like, um, you know, the captain of an oil tanker turns the wheel or the tiller, actually probably just presses a button now, the tanker continues for another mile before it changes direction, right? And culture is 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 similar to that. You know, you change the law now, that doesn't mean that there won't be, you know, four, five, six more years in which people are sort of uh, growing up with these ideas very much fixed in their minds of gambling being an ordinary part of life, of being, you know, part and parcel of, of their social interaction with their peers. So, yeah, and, the, you know, the, the, the person who asked the question, sorry, I can't remember her name, it might have been Sarah, you know, these kind of, these matey messages you get on social media are, are really part and parcel of that because, you know, this is not, we're very aware of when we're being advertised to, right, if there's an advert on TV, but this sort of stuff is much more subtle and it, it, it gets into things like fan culture, um, you know, podcasts and, and football fan TV channels on YouTube and so on you know, suddenly it's part of the conversation you're hearing rather than part of an ad break that comes in between the content you want to hear. I mean, on TalkSport radio, for instance, the commentators are commentating on the game and occasionally reading out odds in between it. So, you know, as as part of the play, as part of their commentary. So these are all kind of very different and subtle ways that the industry is, is getting into our minds. And, you know, it's it's very clever stuff. And it, it's, I think, much more powerful in lots of ways, much more insidious than run-of-the-mill advertising. I mean, you're talking your book, something we haven't really touched upon about the idea of brain hacks and these very sophisticated advertising. Just, yeah, briefly, you know, you've got the advertising on one, ha- on ha- on one hand, 
But what you've also got are these kind of psychological tools that the gambling industry has used since time immemorial to take advantage of um, the kind of psychological traits that they know we have. And these are used very, very subtly. And a lot of this stuff is inbuilt into the way gambling games might work, right? So for instance, uh, we probably don't have time to get into this now, but one of the ones I talk about is the near miss. You put your money on 25 on the roulette table and it lands on 26. You feel like you nearly won, even though it's no no different to if it had landed on one. Uh, and the industry has found really, really good ways of introducing some of these kind of casino era psychological tricks into things like sports betting. So that, you know, these these little triggers in the brain are kind of are catalyzed and, and you know, they can... They can prey upon these psychological weaknesses that, that we all have. I mean, that was one of my favourite chapters to write because I learned so much while doing it. And that's one that I'd, you know, I'd really urge people to look at. I mean, I, I did, there's an extract in The Guardian a week or two ago about this that I'd urge people to go and read if, if they've decided that they don't want to spend whatever it is, 14 quid on the book, then go and read that extract in The Guardian because some of that is in there and it's really fascinating stuff. Got a question here from James, um, which is, this is something you're writing about in your book we haven't really touched on. How has COVID impacted gambling in Britain? Was there more online gambling during lockdown? So there was necessarily more online gambling during lockdown because there was no, or for long periods, there was no high street gambling. So a lot of that money shifted uh, from going into the bookmakers to going online. Perhaps, uh, this is a stereotype, but perhaps I'm guessing about some of the older punters at the bookmakers who perhaps weren't as familiar with the internet started going online. But what we've seen is that as bookmakers have opened up again, the customers flowed back into the bookmakers, but some of those online players, it's been quite sticky. People have stayed uh, betting online, particularly on things like slot machines and so on. And so people have developed a taste for it. We haven't yet got the figures to give us a kind of comprehensive breakdown of, of the kind of final impact of COVID. But I think what we've seen so far is that overall gambling hasn't necessarily gone up, but some of the people at the margins, the people who are very intense gamblers, the people who are perhaps most at risk, most vulnerable, their gambling has intensified because, you know, there was nothing else to do. You're stuck at home. So I think that's that's what the early signs are showing us. I think it'll be a little little while before we get the data to see how that plays out. Part of the reason we don't have that data, I should stress, is because William Hill had been submitting shonky data for months on end and the Gambling Commission has had to go back and redo all of its sums. Um, I think there might be a fine coming down the road for William Hill on that. So watch this space. It's interesting this difference between the sort of high street gambler and the and the online gambler. And, you know, when you go to a football match, you see those little booths in the stand, and I always sort of assume that they're probably giving you rubbish odds because, you know, the kind of people that they're targeting are, you know, whereas if you've got five different apps on your phone, you're going to find the best odds. Is, is that is that the case? Or I mean, it depends who you are, right? I mean, there are pro gamblers out there who spend their entire lives hunting down occasions where the book the bookie's got the odds slightly wrong and comparing odds. I. I'm not particularly interested in, in gambling. I've done it a little bit, partly just as research. I probably wouldn't spend that much time looking between different companies. The majority of them are offering the same odds now anyway, because they're all comparing it against things like Odds Checker or just looking at the Betfair market and, and roughly coming out with the same kind of odds uh, anyway. Yeah, I remember those booths. We had them at White Hart Lane. We don't seem to have them at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, but... I'm reliably informed they're all over the London Stadium at West Ham because Betway are a, yeah. a huge sponsor of, of West Ham. But I mean, I'll tell you one thing that I found quite funny, actually, is we have very good Wi-Fi at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and right. William Hill are the main gambling sponsor uh, at Spurs. And if you try and go on the Ladbrokes or the Bet365 website from the Wi-Fi in your seat at Tottenham Hotspur, you'll very quickly find that they're blocked. 
Um, really? That's I, amazing. I mean, it was fascinating to me that somebody even thought of that. It's another good question. Can you speak about how the type of gambling has changed? Do people actually play those online casino games or is most gambling still on sporting events? Well, I see those online casino games and I just think, who the hell is playing that? Well, I mean, they're, they're very high growth. The two really big growth areas uh, in gambling, football, football betting and slots, and to some extent, casino games. I don't have the figures in front of me. Off the top of my head, I think casino, you're talking about £3 billion a year. That may be including slots as well. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Whereas football is more like £2 billion a year. So actually, the casino is, is bigger. I mean, the thing about all, you know, casino and, and so on is you, you don't necessarily lose more as an individual punter because you can lose quite a lot on sports betting, but it is very reliable income. Those are all fixed odds games. The the companies know exactly how much of your money they're going to get, more or less, if, you know, mm. averaged out over the course of a year and over millions of punters. So, of course, they're going to push that stuff because if you're a chief finance officer at a FTSE 100 company, the one thing you love above all else is reliable revenue mm. because that's how you balance your books and that's how you, you know, make plans ahead. So, yeah, you know, cross-selling is a huge thing. Cross-selling is where you sign up for a football betting account because you love football, let's say, and you just, you know, you want to put two quid on an accumulator at the weekend. All of a sudden, you're going to start being offered casino products and slots and so on. And, you know, that's they, they want to make sure that you're playing every single type of product. But yeah, no, loads of people are playing casino and slots. It's huge. I, I don't see the appeal at all. I mean, I've done it a little bit, again, for research purposes. One of the things I, I noticed and... You know, I'm, I'm not saying that companies do this deliberately because I've got no evidence to prove that. But I got a big win quite early on. So I put in whatever it was, 10 quid on the slots. And I think I got 50 quid back within the first few minutes of playing. And I never got that again. So I kept playing until I essentially lost all the money because, you know, I wanted to replicate the experience. And that's one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a gambler is a big win early on because that creates mm. that dopamine rush that hit that thing you're then always trying to replicate and of course it's probably not coming again or not for a long time anyway and in that time how much you how much are you feeding into the machine without thinking it because because you're see, you're seeking that same rush you say you, you say that in the book day that lots of people's kind of abiding memory of how they got into it is is a big win early on oh it's it's so common yeah Got a slightly self-indulgent question to read out here. I've seen Joey's writing on crypto. Do you think that's the evolution of gambling? I mean, you've also done some great writing on cryptocurrency as well. And something that people often say is, this is like gambling. Do, do what parallels? What do you see parallels between cryptocurrency and gambling? Well, I think that there are two different things to look at there. One is, are we going to see gambling companies accepting cryptocurrency as a means of betting? That's not really happening in the UK at the moment, but it is happening elsewhere. But yeah, the other is, is the trading of cryptocurrency, the buying and selling of cryptocurrency, like gambling. And there are definite parallels there in terms of, you know, the ease of access via your, your smartphone, the kind of the social element of it. Cryptocurrency, as you know, relies very heavily on people talking to each other on social media and saying, get into this one while it's still on the ground floor. And that's a lot like gambling, right? You get tipsters saying, oh, there's really good odds on this particular match. And you get people sort of sending it to one another. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of parallels. And actually what you're seeing is uh, the National Gambling Helpline is getting more and more calls from people who are calling about their cryptocurrency problem, their trading problem, not about gambling at all. You know, there's um, an addiction clinic in, in Scotland that I wrote about recently um, where there's, they're, they're, they're sort of specialising in cryptocurrency addiction and they're seeing parallels with gambling there as well. I mean, 
they are different. I think it's important to recognize that there are there are things that are unique about each. But there's a there's a Venn diagram and there's an area in the center where you're seeing some of the same activities and, and behaviors. And I guess you're, you've probably seen that too in, in your uh, extremely good reporting. We've got another really interesting question here, actually. Are there particular communities affected by gambling or is it just a cross-section of society? I mean, we've already spoken a bit about the difference between men and women, more, definitely more men, but women becoming a bigger problem. What about, you know, race or, or socioeconomic class? Like, how does it differ between different types of people yeah you, you do see some standout areas like for instance i mean this is going off the health survey from 2016 so it's quite old data and again i don't have it in front of me but i mean you do see some sort of higher levels of addiction in certain racial groups for instance i don't want to i don't want to say what they are here because I, I i'm not certain about them i don't have them off the top of my head certainly young skews younger skews male i think you can say that it skews towards lower income people there's often it depends on the activity there but certainly with things like fixed odds betting terminals in bookmakers that was very much big in low-income areas and you know the bookies know that they know what they're doing right and i think that's profiting from a level of of desperation from people thinking well i've got you know my 20 quid universal credit whatever it is you know if i'm lucky i can turn this into a thousand pounds and people who are comfortable don't take those kinds of risks because they don't need to now I do think it's also important to say that gambling addiction is no respecter of class and, and of income. The, the kind of story that the book begins with, and which some people will be familiar with because it's been documented by lots of other news organisations, is that of Jack Ritchie, uh, who very sadly took his own life um, at the age of, I think, 24. His parents were relatively well off by, you know, by the national average standards. And, you know, I it, you've got to be careful about attributing cause to suicide, but it wasn't about financial ruin. You know, Jack's parents could afford to bail him out. So it isn't just about, uh, you know, the, the concern about gambling addiction isn't just about people from worse off backgrounds um, losing everything they have. It's it's about loss of control. It's about mental health and all of that and all those things that can affect people across race and across class boundaries and across gender. One thing which you've just touched on, which which really stuck with me from the book that I'd never thought about before, was this idea that gambling addiction isn't visible in the way that you know alcoholism or drug addiction probably is, and you could just go into work or see your friends, and there wouldn't necessarily be any signs whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sometimes called the hidden addiction, and I know people who are not comfortable with that uh, description um, for various reasons. But the, the reason why it's described that way is that I could be on the sofa next to my wife downstairs while we're watching killing eve or whatever on my phone and she thinks i'm i don't know browsing twitter as i i do compulsively or or whatsapping a friend and i'm actually gambling away our, our life savings or my my child's inheritance or his university fund or, or whatever it might be and the first thing that that your spouse knows or is when they find out the mortgage hasn't been paid that's that week and i or that month and i've you know i've talked to loads of people where this has happened the first thing that the, the, the spouse knows or the parent knows, sometimes the employer, if they've been stolen from, is when there's nowhere left for that person to turn. When they when the police turn up or when the bailiffs turn up or when that person confesses all. I mean, that is just such a, a common story. And, you know, with drug and alcohol addiction, you do get people who are high-functioning drug addicts or alcoholics. But ultimately, if someone is extremely intoxicated, you can see that. And over time, you can see the ravages that it has on the body. Um, and I'm not saying gambling is worse than those things. I'm definitely not saying that, but it is different. And, and, and that is perhaps the unique 
aspect, or one of the unique aspects that makes it so troubling. The other, I think, unique aspect is it, it's it's not finite. As I said before, if you know, if you drink too much or you take a lot of drugs, eventually you're going to pass out or become ill or be hospitalized. But you only need to stop gambling when you haven't got any more money. And if you can borrow or steal, you can always get more money. And, and people do that. So I think that's the other key point about, about gambling addiction that um, that people don't necessarily realize. Got a question here, which is something that I've often received after writing about gambling. Shouldn't gamblers shoulder the blame for taking such big risks with money they can't afford? Should people take personal responsibility for these things? I mean, that's a, that's a big philosophical question, isn't it? I mean, I think most of the people I've talked to who are in recovery would say yes, absolutely. And they do, right? But both sides have to take responsibility. And the industry has to take responsibility. I mean, one of the terms that I try not to use anymore, I have used it in the book and sort of apologise to anyone who may have offended, but it's, it's problem gamblers. And that's a phrase that the industry likes to use, problem gamblers and responsible gambling. This idea being that the onus is all on, on you. And yeah, of course, there has to be an element of personal responsibility. But what the industry doesn't talk about is problem products. And that's what we're really talking about with things like fixed odds betting terminals, with some of the aspects of casino games and slots and even of, of sports betting where rates of addiction tend to be lower. Is, is you know these are, these are things that are designed to be addictive to an extent. And I'm not necessarily talking about you know an evil person sitting there thinking, oh, I know if I do this, someone will become addicted. But that is the incentive mechanism. That's the the structure is all geared towards maximizing profit. And it's sort of it's almost like it's almost Darwinian. Anything that maximizes profit is is, is you know, but through a process of trial and error, it is going to be something that the industry gravitates towards. Um, and often those are the things that are the most risky. We've spoken a lot about what's in your book. Something that isn't in your book is a story you published just about a week ago, a big exclusive. Could you just Talk us quickly through that. So I think you're talking about stake factoring. This is something yeah. which people in the industry, you know, have been tweeting at me and saying, oh, you idiot, everyone knows this, but actually most people don't know it, which is that if you start winning with a bookmaker, quite quickly the amount you're allowed to bet will get dialed down and down and down. Whereas if you're losing, I don't know if they're still doing this, but certainly historically has been the case, if you're losing, the amount you can get, you can bet, gets dialed up and up and up. So essentially the bookmaker's saying, come in, have a bet, place a wager. It's you against me and, you know, fate will decide. But actually, if you're good at spotting when the bookie's got the odds wrong, if you're smarter than them at, I don't know, golf or tennis or some niche area where they haven't got that, you know, their their traders, which the people that compile the odds aren't that good, well, they'll just, they'll stop you winning. So yeah. <laughs> the whole game is rigged, right? The house always wins. That's, that's uh, a given. But... You know, the house always wins usually because there's a built-in edge, but the house always wins now, partly because if you win, well, they don't want your business anymore. Yeah, I, I, that's something that I didn't really realise until I started working with this. If, literally, if you win too much money, they will shut you out very quickly sometimes. And there are people who have been frozen out of all of the main companies. Yeah, and look, sometimes there are good reasons for that. There are people who are obviously cheating or stable hands, uh, yeah. uh, you know, who know that the horse has gone lame or whatever it is, and various other uh, types. But um, Match fixing and football. Right, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of people are getting caught up in that net simply because, you know, they have an eye for a good price. Pretty much the end now. So I just want to say a massive thanks to you, Rob. And do buy Jackpot, How Gambling Conquered Britain. I mean, even if you've watched this for an hour, I report on a lot of this stuff, and there's loads of stuff which I didn't know before reading this book. It's a great read. I really recommend it. Massive thanks to Rob. What are you doing right now? 
Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.